wonderful. Well, it is really good to, uh, to be with you this morning, and thanks for those who've been coming in the evenings. We had a great service last night. Looking forward to the rest of the weekend. I live uh, just outside of Los Angeles um, in Pasadena, California, where the Rose Bowl is, but we're just north of the city. One of my favorite places to go um, in downtown Los Angeles, especially when I just want to go be quiet for a little bit with the Lord. A few years ago, they built a new Catholic cathedral in downtown Los Angeles, the Cathedral of the Angels. And it's it's kind of an unusual uh, Catholic sanctuary. It's very modern. Uh, the the architecture is it's, it's all polished uh, concrete, and it's it's just a kind of big concrete box. But it and all the light fixtures are very modern looking, and the baptismal at the back is this very modern looking cross that that they use as their baptismal. And and so it's not a very warm building, except for one aspect. Um, all along the sides, they had an artist do these amazing tapestries that have been woven together. And these tapestries that are, have to be about 40, 50 feet high, uh, line both sides. But on the tapestries are, on, on each of the different tapestries are four different saints from different eras of church history. And so uh, you might have, um, you know, like Mother Teresa with St. Augustine and with uh, St. Peter. And you've got like three or four different saints from different eras all kind of pointing towards the altar. And so, so it's an amazing place to sit in, in the pew and to, to really sense that you are surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses. And, and so every once in a while, when I know that it's kind of empty I'll, and I want to be alone, I'll, I'll hop on the train and go to downtown Los Angeles and, and walk over to the Cathedral of Angels and sit there and and be reminded of the great cloud of witnesses. But, but of all of those saints on those tapestries, the one that, that is really a hero of mine, and, and uh, I usually go when I go there and sit in the pew near uh, where he is displayed on the tapestry, is, is Stephen from the book of Acts. Um, in so many ways, he is my kind of hero of faith in the New Testament. If you have a Bible with you this morning, or a smartphone, or an iPad, or something like that. Uh, I'd love for you to turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Stephen is a Christian in the early church. He's starting to get in trouble with uh, the Jewish tradition in which he was raised. Um, the, The council draws him in front of them to ask him why he's doing what he's doing, and proclaiming the things he's proclaiming. And so in chapter 7, Stephen gives a sermon that just repeats the entire history of God's interaction with his people. And, and basically, Stephen preaches this sermon. He says, um, God revealed himself and you rejected him. God revealed himself in this way and you rejected him. God revealed himself in prophets and you rejected him. God revealed himself, he revealed himself, he revealed himself. You rejected him, you rejected him, you, you rejected him. And then he entered into... The, the situation, the word became flesh. He dwelt among us. He revealed himself in Christ Jesus. And guess what you did? Bing! You rejected him. This sermon didn't go well, um, although I always think good sermons are when everybody leaves angry. Um, but uh, the sermon doesn't go well. Everybody gets angry. They, they, they drag him out. They, they, they begin to stone him to death. And that's where I want to pick up the story at verse, 30, uh, verse 54. Once the council members heard these words, they were enraged and began to grind their teeth at Stephen. But Stephen, enabled by the Holy Spirit, stared into heaven and saw God's majesty 
and Jesus standing at God's right side. He exclaimed, look, I can see heaven on display and the, the Son of Man standing at God's right side. At this, they shrieked and covered their ears. Together they charged at him, threw him out of the city and began to stone him. The witnesses placed their coats in the care of a young man named Saul. As they battered him with stones, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, accept my life. And falling to his knees, he shouted, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Then he died. And Saul was in full agreement with Stephen's murder. The thing that is so fascinating to me about Stephen is his ability in this moment of incredible pain and rejection, this this moment where he is being dragged out and by his very own people he is being stoned to death. What's amazing to me is his ability to be an instrument of forgiveness even in that moment. That that whenever I read this story, I think this is not the way I would probably react. I, I would probably do one of two things. I'd either pick the rocks back up and throw them back. Or I would shout out to them, God's going to get you, baby! Because uh, I live in Pasadena, um, we go to the Rose Parade almost every year. We, we went on January 1st and... Uh, and there's always, you don't see them on television, but there, there's always these uh, guys who, at the very beginning of the parade, come with big, big signs that say, uh, and they always say, quite literally, they say, God loves and kills. Um, and they have megaphones, and they, they you know, walk the parade before the parade starts with megaphones yelling at people, Happy New Year, you're going to hell. Um, it's always a nice way to start the New Year. Um, my guess is, as those people were, were stoning me, I would have tried to grab a megaphone and say, see you in hell. I mean, you know, something really nice like that. Uh, <laughs> call down curses upon their heads. But what we see in Stephen, and the reason he's in some ways my hero, is because in that moment, he prays a prayer almost identical to the prayer Jesus prays on the cross. Forgive these people. They, they're kind of clueless. They don't know what they're doing. Don't hold the sin against them. And it makes me wonder, then, then why is he able to do that? And I think that Luke wants to give us a kind of clue in the way that he tells the story. That, that as all of this is going on, Luke says, Stephen looked into the heavens and he saw the heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. This is really important theological language. And I want to get theological with you for a few minutes. That this is language that says we're not waiting for the kingdom of God to come someday. But that the kingdom of God is already here. Christ is already at the right hand of the Father. The kingdom is already established. But here's the thing. Stephen sees that, understands that, recognizes that, lives into that. The problem is all of these others refuse to look. They cover their eyes. They gnash their teeth. They refuse to look. As, as Stephen says, hey, look, ha! look up here. I see it. I see heaven open. The Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. The kingdom of God is here. But they refuse to see it. But what makes Stephen able to live that kind of life that forgives even to the end is because he is part of a kingdom that the world so often fails to see. Unless you and I, like Stephen, live lives that reflect the reality of the presence of God's kingdom. And it's fascinating to me that in this story, 
that Saul, who we'll later know as Paul, stands there holding the coats while this takes place. Because later, Paul will give the the very theology that's rooted in the way in which Luke tells this story. Again, let me do theology with you for just a minute. What is fascinating for Paul about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is this. Not that the resurrection happened. If you think of this as a timeline from left to right, the beginning of history to the end of history, almost all Jewish people believe that at the end of history, way out here, that there would be a resurrection of the dead. That the dead would be raised and there would be judgment. They, Paul, as a Pharisee, would have deeply believed that a resurrection would occur at the end. But here's the thing that's so wild for Paul. Right in the middle, Jesus was crucified and died and resurrected. So what is wild for Paul is this, that the resurrection that we expect at the end has happened in the middle. So that the resurrection becomes the first fruits of God's new creation. So if you hang with me for just a minute, the powerful part of Paul's theology is this, that the new creation is not something that we're waiting for out there. The new creation has already begun to break in, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And then the call then for us is to enter into that new creation. So Paul will say this, when we are baptized, we are baptized into his death. So that like the Israelites, when they entered into the waters in the Exodus, they entered into the water as slaves, but they came out as God's new creation. In the same way, Paul says, when we go into the waters, we are identifying our lives with the death of Christ. We're dying to our old self. In the early church, they used to take all their clothes off as they entered the water. As a symbol of leaving all that old life behind. And so we enter into the water and leave all that life behind. I... I've had the privilege of baptizing each of my kids, and, and I know what kind of people they are, and so I've held them under just a little longer than I hold most people under. <laughs> the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit, and, and your father, and your mother. And, you know, just a few more names that we could add in there. But, but for Paul, we, we enter in to put the old life to death, but when we come out, we not only identified with his death, we now have identified with his new life, so we are wrapped in the white robe of the of righteousness the new life and we have entered into this new creation so here's the interesting thing if you can kind of picture it in your mind the platform as the kind of line of history and history has a beginning and it'll have an end but for paul the resurrection that comes at the end has now intersected so now we're living on a kind of new plane where we're kind of caught between the two So you and I are now people who are witnesses to a new creation, but we live still in a a world so shaped by the old creation. And so what I love about Stephen is Stephen in this moment not only speaks words of new creation, but he embodies, even in his death, a life of forgiveness to say, guys, you don't even know what you're doing we don't live in a world anymore where, where we have to enact this kind of violence against each other. Christ has made all things new. By the way, once you understand that, the person to be pitied in Acts chapter 7 is no longer Stephen. I used to read the story and feel so sorry for Stephen, dying so young, dying such a painful death, dying as a martyr. But once we understand Stephen's already part of the new creation, we no longer pity Stephen. We pity those who believe we still live in a world where we have to throw rocks at each other. 
Because they're still part of a world that is passing away while Stephen is already part of a world that is eternal and is the new. Are are you with me? And by the way, I think that's the heart of the gospel. Sometimes we think the gospel is really about kind of praying some prayers somewhere so that so that someday we'll get to go to heaven when we die. And that's a wonderful part of the good news. But the reality is the gospel is not just about waiting for someday. It's about right now experiencing the new creation. And Paul, who holds the coat, and I think is haunted by that image of Stephen praying prayers of forgiveness right to the very end, he will become the one who says, when we are in Christ, there is a new creation. All the old has passed away, and behold, all things have become new. It's the new creation. That's the heart of the gospel. It's what I love about being a minister. Inviting people to become new creations. And seeing when that takes place. I want to tell you one of my favorite stories. One of my favorite ministry stories. Um, I, my wife and I met. Uh, I graduated from college in 1988. My wife and I met about a year later. She was a brand new Christian. I've been a Christian about six months, and uh, she was just so on fire for the Lord. And we, it was so fun to meet her. And about a year later, we were married. And, and I, was, I was going to seminary. I, I lived in Seattle, Washington at the time. And, and I was going to seminary part-time. But the seminary that I was a part of had an extension in Seattle. But I wanted to go to the main campus. And so my wife and I, in, in 1991, moved to California so I could finish. And and I had made a promise to her. We'd been married a year. And she said, you know, Scott, you're a pastor, and we're never going to get to sit in church like normal people. So would you, for a year, would you just get a normal job, and we could go to church like normal people? So I'd made that commitment to her when we moved. Only problem is, I have no other marketable skills. Uh, and so we we're like two months into this thing, and I, I still hadn't found a good job. And and we were out of money, and so we were fighting over dinner one night because we were both frustrated and out of money. And finally she said, forget it, get a job. I don't care if I ever sit in church with you again. Um, so, so I found this, this position as a college pastor. I'd never been one before. I'd been a youth minister. I'd never worked with college students before, but, but I didn't think it had to be that big of a jump. And so, so this church offered me a position, and I interviewed on Thursday, and they said, start on Sunday. And so I didn't really know very much about the church Again, I was new to Southern California, so Deb and I showed up, and, and we, we waited outside the room for this college group to show up. I came in a suit and tie because that's the way I was used to coming to church, and here came all these Californian college kids, man. The first group rode up on motorcycles, and, uh, and they got there early because they, they had a smoking problem, and they couldn't make it through Sunday school without one, so they, they helped us greet while they took care of their habit before we got Sunday school started, and, uh, and this group came in... Um, this whole rock band came in together. I found out later that um, the bass player was part of the church and had grown up in the church and heard that there was a new college pastor. So he brought the whole rock band that he was a part of with him. And, and they were wild looking. Again, this is the early 90s. So some of you will, won't remember this, but there were hair bands that were still popular. So they all had hair everywhere and used at least a, a bottle of hairspray every morning. And but the lead singer, his name was Blackie Wyatt. He, he had hair everywhere and a red bandana around his head. He, he came in cut-off shorts that had sort of inappropriate holes in them in various places. And they were frayed at the bottom. He had black Converse high tops on and a, and a black shirt with the sleeves cut off. And I forget what rock group it was, but some rock group on the front that had this kind of, ah, kind of demonic ah, kind of thing on the front. 
He had earrings all in both ears and bracelets all up and down both arms. And he introduced himself. He said, hey, man, my name is Blackie. I'm, this is my first Sunday ever to come to church. And I said, great. This is like my thousandth, but that's great. You know, and so we're having this conversation and getting to know each other. And he, he made all the way through Sunday school. And, and after we were done, he said, man, this was great today. Um, and he handed me two tickets. He said, our, our band, we play Thursday night if you and your wife want to come. And, and again, you know, I'm Norm Nazarene, all right? And, and so it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, man, what would Jesus do? Well, he'd go to the concert, so I took the tickets. Um, <laughs> so Deb and I go, go hear them play. It was this little club. There were about, there, there were 10 people there that night, Debbie and me and eight people who knew all the words. Um, and so, it, and I... There were three bands that played that night. They were the second of three. I, I forget the names. I, we just affectionately referred to them as Loud, Louder, and Loudest. And it was just really, really loud. That night, as Deb and I are laying in bed, our ears are ringing. And, and Deb is saying to me, um, can you sleep? And I'm like, no, me. And she goes, me neither. And I, uh, she said, you know, man, th- those kids really need to know Jesus. We, we need, especially Blackie, we need to pray for him and pray for salvation and so we spent about 30 minutes that night praying for each of those kids and, and for Blackie in particular. And, and so it was really interesting. Um, he's, he just kept coming and, and we kept praying for him. And it's interesting, kid, about, about two, three months after I'd been there, I'm in the middle of my lesson one morning, one Sunday morning, and he just raises his hand. I said, yeah, you got a question? He goes, no. He said, I, I, I think I'd like to accept Jesus as my savior. I said, that's great. Could you wait to the end of the lesson? No, you know, you don't do that, right? You just say, Yes, all right, put aside. Yeah, so we gathered around him, and, and it was really interesting. He gave his life to Christ, and afterwards he said, you know, Scott, I don't know anything about this, and we had bought him a Bible, and he said, I don't know anything about this. Could we meet together? And so he and I started meeting together one morning a week on a really regular basis. I, I had so many things I wanted to kind of throw at him, but I, I really felt convicted that the Lord needed to work on him as a new creation. And, and so I would give him things to read, and, and I knew, for example, that uh, he was in this relationship with this girl, and it was really troublesome. And, and there were lots of reasons for it as a, as a really difficult problem. But they'd been together for two years and, and, and deeply cared for each other. But, but I knew her name was Leslie. I, I knew she really didn't want to, to have much to do with faith. And, and so we talked about that, and I gave him some things to read, and and one Sunday morning, I showed up, and, and Leslie wasn't there, and Blackie was looking pretty down. I said, what's going on? He said, well, Leslie and I broke up. I said, what happened? He said, well, you know, I've been reading all these books that you gave me, and I was reading this text about... So there's this text in the Scripture that talks about not, not being equally yoked with non-believers. He says that, that we get unequally yoked. He said, I didn't know what a yoke was. He said, did you know a yoke is this thing that you put on oxen and they pull? I said, you know, oh, that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> He said, you know, oxen pull, and, and if, they're, if the oxen aren't the same size and the yoke isn't right, that, that it rubs against them and it causes one to bleed. And, and so they always have to kind of match up oxen and get the yoke to work right. And he said, and I think what God was saying to me in that was that if I'm going to love him and serve him with all my heart, that the person I'm most committed to probably ought to do that also if our relationship's going to work right. He said, so I said to Leslie, Leslie, you've got to love Jesus. And she said, Blackie, I'm never going to do that. And so he said, we broke up. He was devastated. So we prayed together for several weeks. And a couple months later, uh, God sent a wonderful Christian girl named Jennifer into, into his life. And that was great. Um, he, he was struggling with, 
with what he should do with his life. And so we pray about that a lot. One, one Sunday morning, I walked in, and Blackie was over here, and the bass player was over here, and I could tell it was really tense in the room. So I walked over to Blackie and said, what's going on? He said, oh, I got kicked out of the band last night. I said, no way. Now, you have to understand, this is a kid who dropped out of high school after his sophomore year. This was the only income he had in his life was what the band was generating. And all he ever wanted to be in his life was a rock star. I said, what happened? He said, you know, last night we were singing. He said, I realized the stuff we're singing is really dark. He said, you and I have been reading this stuff about how I'm now a child of the light. And if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship with one another. He said, I, I said to the guys, man, I'm a child of the light. This is really dark. So we got to write new songs that aren't so dark. We got to write some stuff that's kind of light stuff, you know. And the band said, well, we'll find a new lead singer. <laughs> and so he said, I'm out of the band. So we pray that God would give him a job. And sure enough, he got a job at, at one of these uh, sort of like a Kinko's. It was a, a copy place. And he was working there for, for several months. And it was frustrated because he felt like he was a good worker, but, but he wasn't getting promoted at all. And, and I didn't know how to tell him this stuff, and I want to be really careful about this. I'm not sure that God cares about your hair and earrings and all that kind of stuff. But, but he had this job, but he's still dressed like the lead singer of Poison. You know? And so I thought, um, I wanted to say, Blackie, I think you're scaring the customers. But I didn't know how to say that to him. But we were praying that God would help him to find favor in his boss's eyes and, and that, that God would lead him to what he needed to do in order to succeed there. So one Wednesday night, Bible study, I walk in, and there's this new kid there. And I walk over to meet him. He's this kid. He had khaki, khaki pants on from the Gap, and he had like an Argyle sweater on, and he had short hair, you know, and I, no jewelry. I walked over, and I said, hey, I'm Scott. It's nice to meet you. He goes, duh, it's me. And he had gone to the cap and bought my, my wardrobe, basically. <laughs> he had cut his hair real short like mine and given all his jewelry away that night. And, and I went, what happened to you? And he goes, look, I'm you. And I said, I know, it's freaking me out just a little bit. He said, but guess what? I got promoted two places at work today. I said, ah! You know, so we prayed about it. Again, I, I'm not sure. Your mother probably cares about that. I'm not sure God does. But, but it's what he needed in that moment. He was still struggling, a lot of anger in his life, a um, lot of stuff. He had grown up in an alcoholic home, highly, very abusive. We prayed a lot, read a lot about God healing him from some of that. One Wednesday night, again, right in the middle of my lesson, he said, Scott, I just have an announcement to make. So I'd like you all not to call me Blackie Wyatt anymore. So, you know, that was a name that I took on when I decided to be a rock star, I thought it sounded like a cool rock star name. He said, but my real name is Brian Clarson. And none of us knew that. We were like, Brian? He said, but you know, as I've been thinking about my life and all that I've been through, I realized that even though I didn't know Christ then, that he knew me and he loved me. And so because he loved me when I was going through all that and knew me, I am now free to be who I really am and my I'm really Brian Clarson, and it was truly one of the, the most emotional moments I've ever been a part of as we gathered around him and prayed that God would continue to help him be Brian, be, be who God created him to be. I have a lot of other stories I could tell you about him, just a couple others. He, he quickly became the leader in this group. God was doing so many cool things with him. I, I made a huge mistake. 
This college group was growing. We called ourselves the Oasis. And, and I said, Brian, you work at that copy place. They also do silk screening of T-shirts. Get us some T-shirts, man. Here's you know, $500, $600. Go get us, get us T-shirts. And, and I trust you. Make a design. And, and I gave the guys the picture this morning. This is the shirt he came back with. Um, he came to my office with all these boxes of shirts. And it's, he drew it. You know, it's this little stick figure with hair everywhere. And and in children's lettering, it says, I love Jesus, SMCC Oasis Group, Sierra Madre, California. And I said, Brian, um, you know we're a college group, right? I mean, you know that college kids are kind of cool. They have a serious case of the cools. And um, this shirt, love this shirt. And I think, I think like Vacation Bible School, this shirt would be a winner, huge winner. That's <laughs> so funny. We sold three shirts, well, four, four shirts. He, he always wore his. He made Jennifer buy one, and I made Debbie buy one, and I, I felt obligated. And so we had, <laughs> you know, had boxes and boxes of shirts, and four of us who purchased one. But um, he called me one night. He, had, he was angry. He still struggled at times to, to get control of some of the frustration and anger in his life. He called me so angry. He'd been at a department store in Pasadena. He was trying to, you know, kind of put together clothes that he was now kind of wearing, but it still was new to him. And, and so he was trying to put together this outfit. And he said these two clerks that were helping him, these two young women, they were kind of making fun of his selections. And it made him really angry. They called me when he gets, got home. He said, Scott, this is frustrated. Rah, rah, rah. I said, Brian, we've been working with this man, you know. Uh, forgiving people's debts as we've been forgiven. He said, yeah, I know. Rah, 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 rah. I said, well, well, let's pray about this, man. So we prayed together. Sunday morning, he shows up. He says, hey, everybody, I got a new job. And we said, new job? You've been doing so well at this copy place. We've been praying about that. What happened? He goes, oh, and then he tells everybody the story about these two clerks. He says, you know, after we prayed about it, so I decided, yeah, that's right. I should, I should be a witness to them. He said, so I went down, <laughs> I went down to Macy's. I applied for a job. He said, and I now work in the same department with those two women, and they're going to get Jesus, baby. (laughs) I've told the story about Brian lots and lots of times. It's hard to believe that that was about 22 years ago. Um, I always wish it had a better ending. Uh, Just a couple of months later, one area of Brian's life that God never quite had time to get a hold of because Brian was always in a hurry. And uh, one Friday evening, he left work, uh, hurrying to go pick up Jennifer to go on a date, and was heading north through Pasadena and ran a yellow light, and uh, never saw the fire truck that was coming the other direction, and was hit and killed instantly. Um, Brian's memorial service was my very first funeral as a pastor. Um, obviously, I, I still have a hard time talking about it. It was a very emotional day. It was an interesting funeral. This beautiful little church that we were a part of at the time looked like a Grateful Dead concert that day. All of uh, Brian's old rock and roll friends showed up. And, and, you know, I had all these new Christians, young people with all sorts of questions that I still don't have very good answers to about why these things happen. And I don't remember a whole lot that I said in the message that morning, but I remember two things, and, and I'll close with these two things with you as well. 
I said to them, I, I remember the very first shirt that I saw Brian in. It was my first Sunday at the church. And he walked in with this black cutoff shirt with this thing on the front. And then I held up the shirt I couldn't sell. <laughs> I said, I remember the last shirt I saw Brian in. And the contrast between what I think was going on inside Brian when I met him and the new creation that had taken place in the end. Brian died about uh, two weeks uh, after the one-year anniversary of his commitment to Christ. And I said to them, you know, I, I don't know how long God will grace me and gift me with the life to live. I hope it's 100 years, but I don't know. But I know this. I'd rather live one year like Brian did knowing what it means, like Stephen, to live as a member of the new creation. <laughs> Caught up in the transformation of life that God wants to do in us all. Not just for now, but for all time. I'd rather live for a year and know that than to live 99 years and not know that. This morning, I want to say to some of you who are prisoners of the old life, there's a different life available to you. It's a life called the new creation. It's not something you can earn. It's something God wants to give you. The only requirement is that you are willing to surrender that old life and enter into that new life with him. And I want you to know that he loves you too much to let that old life dominate you. And so if it isn't today, he's just going to keep hounding you and hounding you and hounding you by his grace and inviting you and inviting you and inviting you to set the old aside and to enter into the new. Would you pray with me this morning? God, thanks for these amazing young people. Some carry incredible burdens. If we could put their life in a t-shirt, it probably would frighten us a little. But you offer us today the grace of a new creation. And so, God, I pray that you would embrace them with your grace. I pray for some who come today really burdened. May they offer the old to you and begin to experience the transformation of the new. Father, thanks um, that in you all things are made new. And so, Father, we surrender our lives to you today. And I pray for that one or two or three students who are here today who really do, this is the moment they've got to let go of the old and offer to you the brokenness of their lives and allow you to make things new. I pray that you would do that even in this moment. Help us, those of us who are a part of the new creation, help us to continue to be formed in ways that witness to your new creation. May, may the world know that the kingdom of God is at hand because they see that kingdom in the way that we talk and love and treat one another, even our enemies. 
So may that be true in us. And may the God of peace himself, may he sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who loves you and forgives you and he who calls you, he is faithful. And he will finish his new creation work in you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go in his peace. We'll see you tonight. Thank you for hiding the clock.